Like any mother, I want justice for my child and won't stop fighting till he's home. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On February 15th, a federal judge dismissed a racketeering lawsuit filed by Energy Transfer, the corporation behind the controversial Dakota Access Pipeline, against Crystal Tubals, an Oglala, Lakota, and Northern Cheyenne organizer, Greenpeace, and others. The dismissal was unusually swift, coming just three days after the final defendant's motion to dismiss was briefed. Lawyers for Tubals argue that the allegations against her consisted entirely of constitutionally protected activity and did not come close to racketeering. Energy Transfer sought to hold her liable for millions of dollars of supposed damages from the protests against the pipeline. The judge said that donating to a cause one supports and posting articles written by people with similar beliefs do not amount to racketeering. Attorneys say the lawsuit was an attempt to recast collective political action as an unlawful conspiracy. Lawyers say the lawsuit was a so-called strategic lawsuit against public participation, the goal of which is not to win, but to burden the defendants with costly and time-consuming litigation procedures while creating a chilling effect that discourages others from speaking out on issues of public concern. Chelsea Manning has been jailed for refusing to testify to a grand jury investigating WikiLeaks. Today, March 8th, U.S. District Judge Claude Hilton ordered Manning to jail. This came after a brief hearing in which Manning confirmed she has no intention of testifying. She told the judge that she will, quote, accept whatever you bring upon me, unquote. Manning has said that she objects to the secrecy of the grand jury process and that she's already revealed everything she knows at her court-martial. The judge said that she will remain jailed until she testifies or until the grand jury concludes its work. Manning's lawyers had asked that she be sent to home confinement instead of the jail because of the medical complications she faces. The judge said U.S. Marshals can handle her medical care. The Innocence Project, an organization that works to exonerate people who have served time in prison for crimes they did not commit, is suing for access to a federal archive that might hold the key to exonerating untold numbers of people who were wrongfully convicted on the basis of faulty so-called bite mark evidence. The Department of Defense's National Museum of Health and Medicine holds the centralized archive of cases in which forensic bite mark evidence was used to convict people. It also holds documents that could reveal how this discredited forensic method evolved. The Innocence Project has already helped exonerate dozens of people who are convicted on the basis of bite mark evidence. The lawsuit holds that the museum violated the First Amendment because it denied the Innocent Project access to the archive on account of the project's professed viewpoint and research objectives. The state of Michigan doesn't have enough money to pay exonerated individuals the compensation they're entitled to for their wrongful convictions. The 2016 Michigan Wrongful Imprisonment Compensation Act requires each exoneree to receive $50,000 for each year spent in prison. Nathaniel Hatchett is one such person. He is eligible to receive $500,000 because he spent 10 years in prison. He's currently unemployed. 
The state's exoneration fund contains about $1.6 million, or $400,000 less than the $2 million it owes one man, Richard Phillips, who was wrongly convicted of a murder and spent 46 years in prison before his case was overturned. Phillips is the longest-serving, wrongfully convicted prisoner in U.S. history, as the University of Michigan's Innocence Clinic points out. Hatchett's lawyer, Wolfgang Mueller, observed, quote, The state screwed these guys by wrongfully convicting them, and now it's screwing them again by withholding money that's lawfully theirs, unquote. According to Slate, in a rare unanimous vote, the Supreme Court decided that all 50 states are now prohibited from imposing excessive fines, including the seizure of cash and property, on people accused or convicted of a crime. Thus, the court placed restrictions on policing for profit around the country. The ruling in Timms v. Indiana, which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg authored, revolves around the fact that the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution guarantees that no excessive fines can be imposed, an ancient right stated in the Magna Carta and adopted by the authors of the U.S. Constitution. The amendment originally applied to the federal government only, not the states. After the Civil War, the 14th Amendment applied those rights to the states which had perpetuated civil rights violations to continue slavery. The Supreme Court slowly applied rights against the states one by one. With Tims, the court applied the excessive fines clause across all the states at once. Before that, states were permitted to confiscate huge sums of cash and property from their residents. Thanks to the new ruling, from now on, states can no longer engage in legalized theft. One of four black voters in Kentucky isn't eligible to vote because of a felony conviction. That figure represents the highest rate in the nation. Kentucky has a lifetime ban that keeps people with felony convictions from voting. The same is true for Iowa and Virginia. Three years ago, Kentucky legislators passed a bill that permitted some former felons with low-level convictions to vote, but it requires that their convictions be expunged first. That process cost $500, making it one of the most expensive expungement processes in the country. The process is understandably unpopular. According to the Kentucky League of Women Voters, only just over 2,000 voters have gotten their voting rights back through this law. As the Daily Coast puts it, quote, felon disenfranchisement works to advantage the most powerful, privileged people in society. They don't want people voting, especially the most marginalized among us, unquote. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. State of Politics reports that Democratic legislators in New York State have announced a bill that would raise the minimum wage of prisoners in New York to $3 an hour. Currently, people incarcerated in New York State earn between $0.10 and $1.14 per hour for doing jobs like cleaning, maintenance, and manufacturing. New York State prisons require most inmates to work six hours a day, five days a week. The last minimum wage increase for prisoners in New York State occurred in 1993. Prisoners have myriad expenses, including phone calls, stamps, and buying products at commissary. If New York State begins paying $3 an hour as a minimum wage for the incarcerated, it will match the minimum wage of four other states, Alaska, Kansas, Maine, and Nevada. The Center for Constitutional Rights reported that as a result of evidence the center submitted with its co-counsel, a federal judge found that the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, or CDCR, is systematically violating the due process rights of prisoners. The judge ruled CDCR is violating the Constitution by repeatedly relying on unreliable and even fabricated confidential information to place California prisoners in solitary confinement. 
The court also found CDCR is using constitutionally flawed gang validations to deny inmates a fair opportunity for parole. On the basis of these findings, the judge granted a one-year extension to a historic settlement agreement the center reached in a previous lawsuit, the aim of which was to end indefinite solitary confinement in California prisons, and included a provision allowing the center and co-counsel to monitor California's process to ensure it moved forward according to the terms of the agreement. And now, we hear briefly from Evelyn, who shares a statement about her son, Melvin Perez, who's incarcerated in Florida. Here she is. I'm recording this in consideration for my son, Melvin Perez. My name is Evelyn Figueroa, the second child of five children. Growing up, Melvin was very shy, quiet, and respectful. Melvin was nine years old when he went to live with his father and his older brother in Puerto Rico. Melvin spent several years in Puerto Rico. He came back to Florida in 1996. He enrolled in high school and began working at Central Florida Bakery in Orlando. Everything seemed to be going good until Melvin fell with a bad crowd, and they offered to help the family in exchange for his loyalty. My son has always owned up. At 17 years old, he took the life of a rival gang member. He made a bad decision in a moment when a situation got out of control and he's been paying for it ever since. Evan was arrested and charged with the murder, which he took full responsibility for, but it didn't end there. The detective decided to pin a string of burglaries on him, although even though Melvin was nowhere near where the crimes had occurred, had alibis for all of them and did not fit the description given by witnesses. There were three robberies in total that they tried to charge him with. And we fought and fought. And in the end, they were able to charge him with one count of attempt robbery with a firearm. The judge decided to run the sentences consecutively so that once Melvin has served the 25 years for the murder charge, which he has completed with his game time calculated in, he has to begin another 15-year sentence. Not only is Melvin serving time for something he didn't do, this phony charge was also counted as a prior, even though it did not happen before the original crime he was arrested for. And it was also used as a departure charge, meaning it allowed the judge to depart from the traditional point system and apply the maximum sentence. Sons grew up definitely. We know and accept this, but he served his time and more so. He has used his time in there well, learning the law, earning the highest possible law degree a prisoner can earn. Melvin has helped people win their cases and their freedom. He has brought several cases before the Supreme Court in defense of prisoners' rights and won. Improving the conditions of confinement for all people locked up in Florida. Melvin also serves as a mentor to young men entering the prison system for the first time. He helps other prisoners navigate the grievance and disciplinary system so that they have a chance at representing themselves. 
We, his family, have supported him and enrolled him in every possible course we can afford. Melvin is brilliant. He is caring. He deserves to be given a shot to make a life for himself out here in this world. He has qualities and skills to offer and a family who loves him and will make sure he reaches his full potential. Melvin has even a job as a paralegal waiting for him. I had never had the opportunity to see my son Melvin graduate high school, get married, have children. He has spent his entire adult life in prison, making amends for a mistake he made as a young child. We're asking Governor DeSantis to grant Melvin's application for clemency. We have exhausted all hope that the court will right his wrong and Melvin's last chance to salvage what's left of his youth lies in the hands of the governor. I want to see my son for once without a guard, a fence, glass between us. As I write this, my son has spent over 20 years in prison. I want to see him happy and healthy in this world, maybe have a family, grandchildren for me. Melvin has brothers, sisters, cousins, nieces, and nephews who love and support him and want him home. Like any mother, I want justice for my child and won't stop fighting till he's home. Thank you, Evelyn, for speaking with us. A quick correction. Evelyn, let us know that Melvin was actually charged with 12 robberies. Up next, we have Duncan introducing a new online project, The Perilous Chronicle, which is an online resource that documents the actions and disturbances in prison facilities across the U.S. My name is Duncan, and I am one of the people working on the project called Perilous, a chronicle of prisoner unrest across the U.S. and Canada from 2010 to the present. We've been working on this project for a bit over a year at this point, uh, and it, it emerged out of just lots of conversations of people that have been interested in the, the prisoner movement and in prisoner support work in, in different capacities and sort of answered this, this question of like, why is there not um, a centralized place on the web where the, the sort of timeline of events as, as they've unfolded over the past uh, nine years or so can be found in one centralized location. So. Uh, when people through these conversations identified this as a real need for coverage of prisoner action and for uh, the the movement itself, we we thought that it would be something that we could offer up. Thus, Perilous was born. The first event that we have on the site is this, these 2010 December work stoppages across Georgia were covered widely in the media after one prisoner was beaten extremely brutally. So we, we chose there to start with our timeline. That's That reason is for a couple of reasons. Number one, this was a, a very important event. But also, since the 2008 financial crisis, there's been crises of state budgets all across the country. And, and one of the things that people um, from all across the political spectrum are, are reexamining is, is the solutions that have been put forward through incarceration over the past decades, really, since the prison boom in the 70s. So overcrowding, understaffing, poor food, privatization of different services. And this is all occurring in the aftermath of the financial crisis 2008, in which there is a shift, actually, in how states are, are organizing incarceration. So we're, we're sort of chronicling various prisoner movements that have emerged like in the midst of this crisis. And the other answer is that uh, we're a collective of volunteers, and we only have so much time and we had to choose to start somewhere. And obviously, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the, the prison movement, uh, 
draws upon legacies that go back a decade, notably with like George Jackson and, and Attica in 1971, but also the prisoner rights movement in, in the 60s. It would be great if we could extend back all the way to that to there, but uh, that would be that would be a future phase of the project. I think there's lots of different conclusions that that uh, users could draw from the data and the posts we have up on the site. Uh, just as a basic observation, is that uh, there is real continuity. That, that that is something that stuck out to me working on the project of uh, these same facilities. Over the course of six months, there'll be a workshop at Jenna Food Strike, and then maybe like a, an uprising, and then maybe a couple years later is actually another sequence of events. And and on our site, we link uh, between those events that it can help uh, you ask questions and maybe even answer questions about like what about this facility? What are, like are the conditions there especially bad? Is this a facility that is overcrowded? And you can sort of you know ask these more um, maybe more interesting questions that that span time. And and also the one thing that is really useful on the site to sort of uncover these trends or, or ways of thinking about uh, what prisoners are doing on the inside. We have the series of tags on the site for that. So every post is tagged on the event type, on the name of the facility, on the type of the facility. So whether it's a state prison or federal prison, whether it's uh, 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 run by a private company or not, you can use those tags to sort through the posts, and you, then you can you can look at oh okay I want to look at only hunger strikes at, at prisons run by private companies, for instance. So you can look at the similarities, the differences across geography based on these searches. So yeah, I mean, those are just like some some basic tools that we have up on the site that people can go in and, and look at these and look at the connections uh, between events over time. Since we launched publicly, which was in mid-February, we've had a bunch of people reach out to us via our email, including actually uh, someone from the California Department of Corrections who sent an email and, and uh, added some details to one of our posts about an action uh, in, in California or that earlier this year. So, but we've had other people that have kind of from the prisoner support side of things also reach out. Okay, I have some more details about this post and this post. So, uh, and that's actually that's a uh, really important for us, and and especially the oh, it's really important for us to get as much include as many voices of prisoners uh, in the project, and that's something that, that I think is different than maybe other media coverage of these things. Like, for example, we're going to include the information provided by the, you know, media spokesperson from the Department of Corrections, California, but we're also including on, on equal footing with the, what, what prisoners said about this action and, and their demands and, and so on and so forth. Uh, we know people all over the country either were there at, at these actions or their family members were there or they did support and they could they have pieces of information that you could um, absolutely contribute to the site and that would be extremely helpful to us. If uh, if you want to send us stuff via mail, PO Box 381 Tucson, Arizona and the zip code is 85702. We're we're not actually able to respond to every piece of mail, but if you if you have information about specific instances of prisoner unrest, then we would love to hear from you. We'll try to respond to that. We cannot respond to all requests via mail. I think rather than what, I, what I've been struck with just personally working on the site is not, I mean, there's obviously many instances of, of actions that took a lot of courage to organize, but I, I, I think that what the site is seeking to show is actually rather the continuity between these actions and sort of the continuous level of struggle going on in prisons. So that's, I think, what the website has to offer. 
uh, because people might actually know these these different instances. People know the, the the national prisoner strike in 2016. They probably know about the one in 2018. But I, I think our the intervention that the site makes is is putting these two national moments where you know, the national media was writing about this stuff and it was trending on Twitter and so forth. But uh, there's you know there's there's this there's this history to that and there's this connecting tissue between these events. The site is can tell you certain things right now, but it's also still a work in progress. And there's, to be honest, like gaps in some earlier years on the site that we're working on filling, and we're and we that that's where the crowdsourcing comes in actually. But especially 2013, 20, 2012, that area, it's uh, we don't have a lot of events fr- from there, and, that, and that's because we're still doing the research to 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 document those events and to make posts about them. You can uncover like bits and pieces of of in some ways like the the rise of the work stoppage uh, that uh, seems to get more frequent, especially around 2015, 2016. And, and yeah, I think that, uh, and also different states, different uh, sort of timelines. For instance, there's been an ongoing struggle over uh, food in Michigan, which our, our site chronicles. There's a series of uh, events where prisoners, almost the entire facilities in Michigan would boycott the chow hall and not go to a meal and then that, and then in tw- late in 2016, that uh, there's an uprising that one of the demands is about food, and then there's actually a, a subsequently a, uh, a another smaller uh, chow hall strike in the wake of that. But as, as far as a, a grand narrative, it's hard because it's and things that things are just much different in the, depending on the type of facility. Because we also are documenting like a, a protest inside uh, immigrant detention facilities, which has a somewhat different lineage, and it's connected in, in certain ways to the system of state prisons that uh, is definitely the most represented on the site. Much of our data, and maybe this speaks to just like the, the uh, background of the people who work on the project and also sort of the particular situation in the state. So a lot of our data is focused on uh, state prisons. Uh, we just, we only have a few posts for, for federal prisons currently. I, I think also that, I mean, that speaks to a couple of things. I think that, uh, there's like the relative to the size of the state, the state prison system in the U.S., the federal prison system is is small, relatively. We initially had our, our goal. Uh, we wanted to chronicle all prisoner actions in, in the U.S., in Canada and in Mexico. And uh, I think that's still something we're all very excited about. And we had we started making posts and started chronicling these events in Mexico. But uh, we we had to draw certain boundaries around things. So, but we did, we did, we did have a, a series of uh, posts about Canada also, and those we decided to include those for the launch of the project with the with the hopes that we can expand uh, geography later down the line. For instance, the beginning of the 2018 prisoner strike, uh, just a couple days before the official launch date of August 21st, prisoners at um, a facility, I believe in Nova Scotia, organized an action in solidarity with this, what was basically, what was kind of a U.S. focused actual national call. And, and, uh, they released a list of demands and, and pledged their solidarity to the, the national prison strike of the U.S. And, uh, so gestures like that, I mean, that was, that, that occurred after we had already started working on this project, but hopefully we can cover more of those actually as we, as we keep doing our research and, and keep, uh, adding events and learning about events that have occurred over the past nine years in Canada. For things that should be on the website is, any prisoner action at facility, prison, detention center that includes two or more prisoners and has as its like as its target either conditions 
or abusive guards or uh, other other sorts of abuses or uh, maybe even incarceration itself. And and uh, obviously there's many sorts of other disturbances that occur in these facilities and many, if not all of them, are, are connected to terrible living conditions. I mean, the, the process of putting humans in cages will lead to all sorts of different uh, manifestations of violence. But we we had to draw certain sorts of boundaries and uh, we try not to include just like, if it like, seems to just be like a fight in between prisoners, even if it's and maybe, you know, the, the context is the system of incarceration. It's, we, we, you know, we, we try to focus on the website on events that are like more like protests or uprisings or food strikes, these sorts of things. Um, but we include if two prisoners attack a guard who's been messing with them meets the criteria and it's on the website. So, and I mean, we're open to any sorts of feedback around our framework, but that's, that's what we thought was most useful. But there seems to be a moment where people are actually asking kind of like existential questions almost about uh, prisons as early as in the way that that they've been uh, constructed over the past 50 years. So maybe we can call it mass incarceration or whatever. But I think people from all sides of the political spectrum uh, are like, are looking at, at the prison system and saying it isn't working uh and maybe their reasons are are are, are very different uh sometimes it's about balancing a budget and nothing else but people are actually looking at these things and 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 and, and trying to figure out other ways of of, of organizing society and i think that i think that uh what we see this project actually is intervention in this uh discourse happening right now and we actually want to be like used by people like all sorts of people, so any all sorts of researchers, anyone interested in what's going on inside prisons, like what are prisoners doing to change their conditions? Basically, that's that's what, and we think uh, the, this project we, we're seeing it as like as that intervention. In some ways, that actually means like we're this isn't this is uh, this is politically to the extent that we're like highlighting things that are often hidden, but um, we're we're really trying to put the information out there that many sorts of people can use and that's kind of because we think that the information speaks for itself and we think that these like there's you know the list of demands there's reasons for these things and not just to like rationalize prisoner actions but to say like this is what's going on and that if you if if you put humans in cages like this then there's go these actions are inevitable um the website is is, is sort of that intervention into what is actually um uh a, a debate that is actually there's probably policy changes happening in many states and at the federal level. Yeah, we think that to the extent that we can get uh, prisoner voices and prisoner organized actions into that debate, uh, then we have succeeded for a project. Terrorist is absolutely looking for uh, any more information about any of the events that are already online or any events that aren't already online that you, you have uh, either uh, primary source documents or you just know that they happened and we haven't covered them yet. We're really, we'd love any help in that direction um, because we know there's a lot of stuff out there that we've missed and uh, we would love to include up on the site. You can find more about the project at their website, perilouschronicle.com, or email them with details about an event at perilouschronicle at protonmail.com. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. 
You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.